0: Our scripture readings this morning begin in the Old Testament with the prophet Nahum. <coughs> Just going to read the first 8 verses from chapter 1, and then we will look at the our New Testament reading in Revelation chapter 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord from Nahum chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. The burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum. The Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the Lord and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue His enemies. You'll notice quite a few similarities to what we've been covering in uh, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now from Revelation 16, our New Testament scripture reading. The Apostle John says Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are Your judgments. Our text begins this morning at verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give Him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to a place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from heaven of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. And the city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. There ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You asking that by Your Spirit You would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of Your Word. That we might see Your great Word, Your great truth, Your great wrath, even, on those who do not follow You, to those who do not obey You. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved people of God, working my uh, way through the study of this revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have found that it, it fits with some Old Testament texts that I've been reading lately, particularly in the, the Minor Prophets. And, and it's amazing to me just to see how much of the Old Testament really points to this very same message that we find in the Apocalypse of our Savior. And what this really does is it reinforces the idea that that God's judgments are both an already and a not yet. That there is a fulfillment given in its time, but there is also a future and final fulfillment in the judgment of God yet to come with greater intensity. It was uh, back in 2010 that I preached through the book of Jonah. And then after that, I preached through the book of Nahum in our evening services. And you probably know the book of Jonah pretty well. It was written about actually a hundred years before the book of Nahum. <clears throat> and you might remember that Jonah went reluctantly to the city of Nineveh, preaching God's judgment uh, for their sin. The Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the head, <clears throat> <excuse> me, <clears throat> uh, was wicked and cruel beyond belief. Uh, But they repented at the preaching of Jonah from the king right down to the least of them. But God did not change His mind about destroying the city of Nineveh after 40 days, did He? I mean, not really when you think about it. Because what God did is He acted in in accordance with His character. If He calls us to repent... If He calls us to repent, threatening that He's going to punish us. If we don't, and we do repent, He doesn't send the punishment anyway. He forgives. In fact, you might remember, Jonah knew this. And actually, he was a little bit worried that you know God might do this. Which is why he ran in the other direction to begin with. And you think about that. A preacher who doesn't want converts, right? But God is merciful and He's gracious to the city of Nineveh. However, a hundred years later, Nineveh is just as bad as ever, if not worse. She has forgotten the mercy and the grace of God. She has once more returned to her previous sins, to the wickedness and cruelty of her past. And and just think about that. God even knew that was going to happen, didn't He? He knew this was going to happen a hundred years later, and yet He forgave them anyway. But now the prophet Nahum comes on the scene And there is no repentance. There's no fasting. There's no sackcloth. And the judgment of God falls on Nineveh in all of its justice, in all of its righteousness. The cup of God's wrath is now full and the day of judgment has come. The Assyrian empire of which Nineveh was the head is destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And you might remember God had used the Assyrians to punish His people. He even called them the rod of His anger. But in the book of Nahum, the wrath of God now comes upon this ungodly nation for their sin, for all of their wickedness. And God brings it upon them in great finality. And this is what our God is going to do at the end of the age. The judgment of God has come. We can say that. And it continues to come during the age in which we live. It has come all the way down through history. But the great and terrible day of the Lord will come with great finality, with great completeness. The nations will be punished for their hatred, for their persecution of God's people. That's God's promise to us. So let's move on here to chapter 16. To the final four bowls of God's wrath. Uh, We've already looked at the first three bowls. Uh, The seven angels uh, have been sent out to pour out the bowls of God's wrath on the earth. That's what we see in verse 1. The first bowl speaks of the suffering of the wicked. That is, on those who have the mark of the beast. They're going to suffer for their sin and wickedness against the Lord. The second bowl speaks of really an economic hardship in the world because what this world puts their trust in is going to fail them, and it's going to fail them miserably. The third bowl, of God's wrath is actually kind of similar to the second. But again, it speaks maybe more directly to hunger and famine and want. And, And again, the world system is going to fail. And it's going to fail in the most disastrous way. And why do these things come upon the wicked of this world? Why is God doing this? Because they've shed the blood of His saints and His prophets. And so now God gives them blood to drink. And this is God's just and righteous punishment. It's, it's really uh, a punishment that fits the crime. Because God's punishments always do. You know, part of what we need to learn in this city, what we've already been learning, is not just that God is going to take care of His people. That He's going to see us through to the end. And it's not just what God has planned for us in glory that will make anything and, and everything that you and I have gone through for the sake for His sake in this world To make that worthwhile. What's coming will make us forget what we've been through. It is so great. But you know, our great Savior wants us to know. And He wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. That He will avenge the suffering of His people on this world. And His followers. On the dragon. And all of His helpers. And our God will do so in a way that is just. And is righteous. In fact, it is so just and righteous that you and I will sing His praises for His punishment upon this world. That's what chapter 15 told us. So let's move on to the last bowls of God's wrath as we find them in the last part of chapter 16. My theme this morning is basically the same as previously. The Lamb victoriously sends forth the bowls of God's final wrath. This is the second one on this chapter, chapter 16. Last time we looked at the th- first three bowls of God's wrath in verses 1 through 7. Now we're going to look at the fourth and fifth bowls of God's wrath in verses 8 through 11, and then the sixth and seventh bowls of God's wrath in verses 12 through 21. <clears throat> the fourth bowl of God's wrath. It's, it's sin against those who have the mark of the beast. We're, we're, we're told that over and over in this. Um, but let me read verse 8 again. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Remember that each bowl of judgment is really a vision. It's, it's figurative. And so, and so the resulting judgment is also a figurative uh, as well. It's a figurative vision of what God is going to do. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the pouring out of God's wrath is always seen as fire uh, to show its destructive effect uh, as judgment. I want to give you a couple examples of that. Uh, first from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. And then one more from Psalm 79, uh, verses 5 and 6. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. And so the point of this, of the burning and the fire, these are metaphors of God's judgment on the wicked. And it shows the, the very destructive nature of God's judgment upon them. That it is a, 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 a terrible judgment. But you should also notice there in verse 8 that the verb given. That's what it says in our text, this was given. Right? And it tells us what we learn explicitly actually in the next verse. That this judgment doesn't come from the angel. It doesn't come from the sun; It comes from God Himself. That God is the One who sends these plagues on the wicked. And that will be clear in the next verse. Very clear. And, and so the, the reference to the sun in this bowl of wrath it, it should remind us that, that often in the Old Testament, and it's also repeated in the New Testament, that the, the interruption of the regular patterns of the heavenly light sources, uh, it always symbolizes covenantal judgment. God has said in the past, this is what I'm going to do. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That's a, a metaphor for covenantal judgment. Things are going to change. The cosmos is going to be altered. The nations and the people are going to be judged because why? Because they have altered God's moral law. And therefore God sends His judgment upon them. In fact, the the mention of fire and the sun in this bowl of judgment should even remind us of something that happened on the cross, right? When our Lord Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God for us. What are we told? That the sun was darkened. And when we consider the bowls of wrath that that are poured out upon the wicked for their sin, let us remember this. That the bowl of our judgment... In all of its fullness was poured out on our Savior, who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We also know, beloved, that Christ suffered the fires of hell itself, and He did so for us. You know, that's the meaning behind the Apostles' Creed when it says He descended into hell. It means that Christ suffered the everlasting fires of hell as He suffered in our place on the cross. And so what is the result of this bowl being poured out on the earth? What happens? Verse 9, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. It speaks of suffering. Being scorched by great heat might, it might seem kind of a, well, what's going to happen here? But I want you to consider this. I think it would be helpful to remember that part of the blessing of the redeemed in glory is that we no longer have to suffer like we do in this world. Revelation 7:16 speaks of eternity in this way as it speaks of the end they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore the sun shall not strike them nor any heat and that's really similar language to our text and so it should be clear that this is speaking of a devastation that results in famine and pestilence and suffering And that's part of the covenantal curses from uh, Deuteronomy 32. Again, if we look at the Old Testament, we we learn more about what is being said here in the book of Revelation. Uh, What God said to his people, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 20 through 24, speaks of this very thing For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell, it shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. This is what the fire is. I will heap disasters on them. I will spin my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. And this was the covenantal curse to God's people. And if God's discipline upon His people is that, Then surely his punishment upon the wicked will come with even greater intensity. And yet, what is the result? What is the result of God's judgment on the wicked? Does it bring repentance? Do the wicked turn from their sin and turn to the true and living God? Not even close. They're not only unrepentant, they they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues. Now, that statement, of course, makes it clear once again that God himself is the source of these plagues. These bowls of judgment come from God. But it also makes it clear that the wicked know this. Now, this is the same response that we will see in the next bowl of God's wrath as well. Uh, But it's also the same result that we saw back in chapter 9 with the sixth trumpet they do not repent. And yet we try to understand here that this pre-return of Christ's judgment, that's what this is. It's a, it's a judgment before, just before Christ returns, maybe. It's a judgment that has come previous as well, but particularly in its severity here. It anticipates. It an- points us toward the final judgment that is coming as it is described for us in the destruction of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, yet to come. But... Let's consider a little bit more about the blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is a defiant, slandering, and defaming of the name of God as the one true God. God's name, his very name represents who he is, his his attributes and his character. And these reprobates speak lies about god as as if they can somehow uh, have some sort of revenge for the punishment that they're experiencing under God's hand. But why do they do this? Why do they do this? We should understand here that that the wicked are not innocent in this. What they have done is they've merely taken on the character of their real master, of the one that they follow. And you might remember the beast from the sea in chapter 13, what was said about him. Verses 5 and 6 from uh, chapter 13. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And so the blasphemy of the people, of the wicked people, those who have the mark of the beast, it shows that they've become just like their master. Just like the false and beastly God that they worship. In fact, this is uh, kind of interesting. The only other places that speak of blasphemy in the book of Revelation, it's always attributed to the beast who's blasphemous. And so these ones, these ones who have the mark of the beast, they, they deny God. They deny His authority over them. They, they do not repent And what that means is they become immovable. They become hardened in their sin, in their refusal to acknowledge God's glorious character and the salvation that He offers to them in Christ. It's an attitude of the heart that refuses to repent. That refuses to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This heart attitude will never pass away until the Lord returns in his final judgment. I made reference to that recently in a sermon in Mark 13. This generation will never pass away. It doesn't speak of the people or a certain amount of time. It speaks of a heart attitude, of opposition against the truth as it is in Christ. It will never pass away until the Lord returns. But let's move on now here to the next bowl, the fifth bowl of God's wrath. Verses 10 and 11. Uh, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. So it's it's very similar to the previous bowl, at least the response that we see here from mankind. Uh, The throne of the beast represents his rule over his his supposed kingdom, his fake kingdom. And this darkness affects his ability to rule uh It's not only gives you kind of a picture of hell when you think of that darkness and, and uh, you know gnawing their tongues in pain um, but it's it's also <clears throat> it symbolizes that all of the ordained events that God is bringing to pass they are designed to remind the ungodly of their persecution, of their idolatry of their persecution of God's people that it is all vain and empty that they are going to get what they deserve and, and really kind of take the darkness even further that darkness represents it's a it's a picture of their separation from God it's a reality that they are in darkness they have no light at all in fact the darkness is is a, a, a symbol of, of reprobate's judgment in uh, in the New Testament 2nd Peter two seventeen. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And then you see how that very same phrase uh, in June, Jude 13, they are raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars from whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. <clears throat> Now beloved the, the bowls of God's wrath they they should remind us that all who oppose our Lord and Savior all who oppose our God they will fail in their rebellion against him and not only will they fail but they will receive the just due for their sin and rebellion against him they will see him whom they have pierced and they will mourn now the piercing of Jesus it means more than just what happened to him on the cross that physical act when the centurion poked him with the spear. Because the, the wicked continue to pierce our Savior. They, they continue to crucify him in their hearts. They, they continue to blaspheme his glorious name and his holy character. They heap abuse upon him and they speak all kinds of evil about him and against him. They lie about his good name. They persecute his followers. And and therefore, they deserve all that they receive from His hand. But know this. Even now, even right now, after all that has been done, the door of salvation stands wide open. I I want to read to you something I came across. I put it in the closing comment in the bulletin, uh, if you want to follow there, just to show you the heart of Christ now what His heart is like. You know, some might think that that Christ would refuse those who crucified Him, but that's not the case at all. So I want you to listen to these words of grace. For those who deserve His wrath. For those who crucified the Lord. Who came to save them from their sins. You know, we might think that Christ would crush them without any mercy at all. But what does He do? He tells His disciples to bring To these ones, the gospel first. Now, I was just going to read part of this, but I'm just going to read the whole thing. I think it'll be easier. Um, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Luke 24, verse 47. It's very affecting that the first offers of grace should be made to those who of all the people in the world had done Him the most harm. One would rather have expected the apostles would have received another kind of charge... And that Christ would have said, let repentance and forgiveness of sins be preached, but do not carry it to Jerusalem, that wicked city that has been the slaughterhouse of my prophets, whom I have sent. Last of all, I myself, the Son, came, and with wicked hands they have crucified and murdered me. They may do the same to you. Do not let the gospel enter those wicked gates through which they have led me, its author, to crucifixion. But Christ singles out, here's the key, exactly these murderous people of Jerusalem to make monuments of His mercy and commands the first offer of eternal life to be made to them as if the Lord had said, lest the poor house of Israel should think themselves abandoned to eternal despair, as cruel and vile as they've been. Go, make the first offer of grace to them. Let those who spilled My blood be welcome to its healing virtue. Tell them that there is repentance and forgiveness even for them. And this is what really touched me. Nay, if you meet that poor wretch who thrust his spear into my side, tell them there is is another way, a better way of coming to my heart, even my heart's love. Tell them that if he will repent and look upon me whom he has pierced and will mourn, then I will cherish him in that very bosom which he has wounded. Tell him that he shall find the blood which he has shed to be an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him for me that he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood Than when he first drew it forth, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Beloved, today is the day of salvation. And here in these words, we see the heart of Christ for sinners, even those who crucified him. And we come to the sixth and seventh bowls of the wrath of God where the final and complete end of the judgment of God comes to reality. What God has said was coming, what he's proven is coming by his judgment down through the ages is now come in a full and complete reality uh, upon this earth. And this really makes up the, the largest portion of the bowls of God's wrath here, as you notice So let me read just a few verses here again to begin with. The sixth angel, verses 12 through 14, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouths of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of of God Almighty. And they gather them together to the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. The sixth bowl produces, it results in, Armageddon. The last battle of the age. But you know, in order for us to really understand this battle, we, uh, I want to just give you a, a quick review of this symbol in the Old Testament. It begins all the way back in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And you know, in the book of Judges, Israel goes through a lot of misery because of her sin. Uh, And she's in misery again in chapters 4 and 5. King Jabin the Canaanite, he's the oppressor. Uh, Raiders, were told, come and destroy, and they plunder the crops of the Israelites. It's so bad, we're told, the Israelites actually go into hiding. They're hiding in the caves. And they cannot drive these Canaanites out because King Jabin and his general uh, Caesarea have 900 chariots of iron. And Israel doesn't even have a spear or a shield. They look like they're going to perish. But in the land of Ephraim lives Deborah, the prophetess, who one day tells Barak, Go up, for this day, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Caesarea into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So this battle is fought at Megiddo, which is actually Armageddon. And Israel's enemy, of course, is routed. Even though Israel's vastly outnumbered and out, uh, you, know, you know, they don't even have the weapons themselves, but the Lord defends His people and He defeats their enemies. As, as Deborah and Barak later sing, uh, they fought from the heavens, the stars from their courses fought against Caesarea. So God Himself, the heavens Himself, were against the enemies of God's people. And so Armageddon becomes this symbol of really every battle where the need is the greatest for God's people. Where God's people are bitterly oppressed. And what happens? The Lord comes suddenly to deliver His people and to destroy their enemies. Think about it. You know, when Sennacherib's 185,000 are slain by the angel of the Lord in one night, that too is a, is a shadow of the final Armageddon to come. Later on, in after you know, the biblical record, uh, when God grants a little handful of the Maccabees a glorious victory over their enemy, the, uh, the, the Greeks that were uh, ruling at that time, uh, an army that far outnumbered them, that too was a type of Armageddon. But the real, the great, the, the final Armageddon coincides with the end. With that time of Satan's little season where he knows his time is short. When the world is under the tyranny of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and it's gathered against the church for one final battle. And it's then when the, when the need is greatest, when, when God's children are being oppressed on every side and they, they cry out for help, then suddenly and dramatically and decisively Christ will return to deliver His people. That final tribulation, that final appearance of Christ on the clouds of glory to deliver His people, that is Armageddon. And so for that reason, the sixth bowl points us to Armageddon. The final battle in the history of this world that will bring it all to an end. Now we're told some details here. John sees the sixth bowl is emptied and the Euphrates River uh, dries up. Uh, And a road is prepared for these anti-Christian powers, these persecutors uh, of the world to come and attack the church. Uh, The apostle sees frogs proceeding out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast. Anti-Christian government out of the mouth of the false prophet. Anti-Christian religion. And and these frogs are symbols of the three unclean spirits. Uh, It kind of shows us that they're abominable, they're loathsome, they're repulsive, right? But they represent all of the satanic, wicked, and sinful ideas, all the satanic and wicked and sinful plans of hell that are being introduced into the world, into the thoughts and actions and the rebellion of mankind. And what it means is that when the kings of the earth gather to battle for that final battle against God's people, that battle is really inspired by hell itself. This is it. We're going to get rid of them forever. But it's not the case, is it? Now, now very little is said here in chapter 16 about the final battle. But we must remember, this is the the same conflict of Armageddon that's described back in chapter 11. And we're going to see more of this in chapters 19 and 20. There will be more details given as it goes further and further in these visions. Uh, um, And it's at this moment of tribulation and anguish. This moment of oppression and persecution that that the Lord will appear. We have verse 15 here just to remind us. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. When Christ comes, it will be suddenly. It will be expectantly. It will be as a thief in the night. And there are other Scriptures that speak of that. In Matthew 24-29, Jesus Himself speaks of that. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in 1 Thessalonians 5-4. 2 Thessalonians 2-8 and following. And we have an allusion to that in 2 Peter chapter 3-10. verse 10. And so we are reminded, Christ Himself reminds us here again, uh, just as He does in Mark 13, that we are to be vigilant, That we are to watch. That we are to pray. That we are to be working in this time. That's what our calling is. Christ is going to come. Keep that in your mind. It's going to get tough. But I'm coming. But ask yourself this, beloved. Who are you? If you belong to Christ, then you are part of that multitude that cannot be numbered. The ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, what does Christ say to you? Keep watch over your soul. Keep your eyes looking to Him because He's coming in great power and glory to judge the living and the dead. Be ready for His return. That's the th- what verse 15 is telling us here. In the midst of all of this judgment, be ready, Christ says, For I am coming. <clears throat> now this section dealing with the bowls like the preceding one, it ends this with this very vivid description of the terror of the final judgment, and this is symbolized in the seventh bowl. Um, verses seventeen and eighteen. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises, and thunderings, and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. And so the seventh bowl is the final judgment. The sixth bowl is Armageddon. The seventh bowl is the final judgment. And this is the final fall on all who oppose uh, our God. All the delights that they have, uh, those who have... have the mark of the beast, all their delights in this world, its all collapses. It's utterly ruined. In fact, this bowl being emptied into the air speaks of a curse when it falls upon the air. It, it really, that life on earth is over. It perishes. John hears a loud voice from the sanctuary, the voice of God Himself. It is done. It's complete. The final and complete outpouring of God's wrath so long restrained has now come in all of its fullness. The judgment day has revo- uh, re- arrived in all of its finality and all of its fury. And we're told in this vision that John sees flashes of lightning. He hears the rumblings of thunder. And he witnesses a terrible earthquake, the greatest of all time. <clears throat> and what happens? Verses 19 through 21. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found, and great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. The great city, Babylon, this world. Under the dragon is broken into three pieces. It falls apart literally, right? That's the picture here. And so this entire anti-Christian empire of the beast, of the dragon, this center of seduction, of anti-Christian religion, it all falls apart and it's all destroyed. The end has come. The cities and the nations are ruined. In this day of great judgment, <clears throat> it will become evident that God has not forgotten the sins of Babylon. He remembers. That's what it says, right? His anger so long restrained now fully explodes, if you will, upon them. And the world will receive the full cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. We've, we've seen this previously in uh in Revelation 14, verse 10. Every island flees and the mountains are not found. Again, it's been said previously. Revelation 6, 14. John in the Spirit, he, he sees these great hailstones. Every stone weighing about 75 pounds in weight. That's what a talent is. Falling down upon an unrepentant world. And so the meaning here is that the final judgment of the entire Empire of evil comes upon them and they are destroyed. It comes and it brings utter ruin. And of course, the fact that the great hailstones are falling from heaven symbolizes God's judgment. The final and complete outpouring of His wrath. But even then, even at the end, these hardened sinners continue to blaspheme God. Because of the coldness and wickedness of their hearts. Beloved, let us learn from this. That the punishment that is coming on the world is both just and it is righteous. And let us learn from this. That this world is going to fall apart. It is passing away. That everything that this world trusts in will ultimately fail. Our God will bring it all to nothing. Of that you can be sure. And He will prove the Scripture that says it is a terrible thing, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God for all those who reject Him, for all those who reject His Son, who trouble and persecute and murder God's people. The day of judgment, the day of justice, it is coming. And it will be a day of suffering like nothing this world has ever known because it is the great and terrible day of the Lord. But for those who are in Christ, for those who persevere to the end, for those who seek the Lord and His salvation in Christ, the day of trouble is the day of rejoicing. Psalm 54, verse 4 says, Behold, the Lord is my helper. The Lord's not going to help the wicked of this world, but He is always, always the helper of the meek in heart, of the poor in spirit, of those whom the world considers to be nothing, who consider us to be the off-scouring of all things. Because listen, beloved, you are precious in His sight. You are His jewels. And one day He promises He will come for you. It is as the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And that's what awaits us all, beloved. beloved. We, We are looking forward to that great and glorious morning when Christ returns, when He comes, and He brings us into the eternal day of His glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen.